welcome to Systematically. It's been a while. Uh, life kind of got in the way. We couldn't quite get everybody on the same schedule to make episodes. Uh, and I'm sorry about that. But, you know, we do this for free. So you're welcome. Put an episode up just recently with uh, Ryan and Robin talking to Eric Mabry about metaphysics and Christology. You should go check that out if you didn't see that go up a couple days ago. Um, but today we are here with an uh, old Marquette friend of mine, Eric Vanden Eichel. Hi, Eric. Hey, John. Uh, Eric is a biblical scholar. He um, knows a thing or two about what I want to ask today. Very timely topic. Uh, the genre of apocalyptic literature in the Bible and Bible adjacent. So um, we're going to get into that uh, and, and learn a thing or two. We're venturing out uh, in the name of keeping you all occupied during social distancing. But first, we want a little fr frivolity. We want to, um, I, I want to hear, Eric, how social distancing is going in your household. You know, so far it's going, it's going pretty well. Um, we are, I think the toughest thing for us so far has been, um, you know, we've lost that schedule and the kind of the different expectations of days and, and everything. And um, I was remarking to somebody the other day that I feel a lot like the, um, the old, uh, the character in Downton Abbey who, uh, when people are sitting around her table talking about on the weekend and she says, what's a weekend? Um, exactly. Because with, with social distancing and, and the kind of, um, you know, my wife and I are both teachers and so we're home and kids are all out of school. So they're home. And now, uh, every day is every day is Saturday, I guess. No, so, one's, uh, no one's yards have ever looked better. Right. Exactly. Everybody has impeccably manicured lawns all of a sudden. Well, yeah, it's funny. I'm, I've got all sorts of, uh, I mean, our house is going to, going to have all sorts of sweat equity in this place when this is all over. <laughs> So, yeah, that's boy. There's there's an upside. There's a there's an upside. Any other any other social distancing upsides? So we can we can keep it positive. Oh goodness, yeah. No, I've got these boxwoods out in the backyard, and I'm going to take an axe to their roots right after we're done here. So, all right, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, but uh, no, it's basically all just kind of home home repair and home home improvement. <laughs> but 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 only with things that we already have here. Oh yeah. Um, Right. So no, no Home know. Depot trips. No, no grass seed. Yeah. yeah. Make do with what you've got. We're uh, so I last I was on this podcast, my wife was super duper pregnant uh, and she has since had our baby Hannah. She's here, which is lovely. Um, but it does mean that we're socially distancing with a four year old and almost three year old and a newborn, which is mm -hmm. an adventure. Um, but also <laughs> the week that Hannah was born we realized that the wet spots in the carpet just outside of one of our bathrooms were not just the kids making a mess, but were in fact a foundation leak in the mm. pipe that goes from the toilet into the sewers. Mm. Um, so we rent, thank God. So that very expensive repair was not uh, on our docket. Yes. But, uh, but it does mean that like my, my poor wife brought uh, a new baby home to a house full of plumbers and uh, part of our hallway taped off so that they could like pull all the tile out so they could take a jackhammer to the foundation, lay rebar, the whole nine. Um, and we just, we, the clock ran out before they could put new carpeting in. So we've just got like a section of our hallway with the carpet torn out. And I think it's going to be that way for a while. We'll see. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah it's, I... been, it's been awesome. 
<laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, I, I kind of, we own our house now, but we rented for four years when we first moved out here. And I really, you know, I really miss like, you know, the, hey, the air conditioning's out. Just call the <laughs> landlord. And now it's, you know, it's a little bit more painful. Oh, I got I to find my own guy. Oh, no. Right. Yeah, right. No, exactly. Um, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's been wild. On the other hand, I feel like I've kind of, uh, felt a weird. I actually have been really, I've been really pleased to see uh, whatever uh, failings uh, is that is that too weak? Uh, whatever failings there may have been at the federal level, just for example, uh, in mm-hmm. responding to this particular crisis, um, I have been really impressed with, at least in my social circle, how like everyone feels this pressure to be like responsible citizens and to like try and understand what's going on and keep up on the latest information. Um, and it's like exhausting and taxing and we're all a little anxious and like threadbare four days yeah. into it now. Um, but I've been really pleased. Like it's been really neat to see people um, sort of, you know, take up their part as much as they're able. Um, that's kind of why I wanted to, to re- record a show. Cause I feel like if uh, you know, if we can kind of, uh, you know, show show up with what we've got uh we can all kind of even if we're doing it a digital remove we can help each other kind of get through yeah and i think you know the the local you know we don't um well i haven't seen much of my local community because we're social distancing of course but um, right. uh but you know i think social media is also uh, very much part of our social communities now and you know i think you're right i mean for the most part my uh little networks and echo chambers have have really shown up uh, in, in really significant ways. I mean, you've got, you know, publishers in our disciplines who are making online textbooks available for free. And, you know, you've got, um, uh, internet companies who are bumping bandwidth and, you know, it's, I'm, I'm always the cynic. And so part of me is like, they just want to get us hooked on faster internet. But at the same (laughs) time, I think there's a lot of people who are, who are, who are helping and that's, and that's a good, or, you know, trying to find whatever little ways that they can, that they can to help. And that's, that is a, uh, I wish we were more helpful in times of Um, (laughs) non-crisis. Sure. Sure. It is, it's, uh, there's something about, I was talking about, uh, on Twitter, the, you know, there's the the sort of theological idea of concupiscence and everybody thinks about concupiscence in terms of sexuality, right? Which is, Mm -hmm. it makes a kind of sense. Sexual drive Mm -hmm. is a, is a, powerful one in human beings um but i was talking about the the concupiscence of just the caloric demands of responding to complicated situations Mm. as being like an occasion for sin (laughs) like like, you know what screw it this is too hard to figure out i'm going out and i'm getting a hamburger like just gonna yeah yeah you know i'm just like you've always said you've always given me good advice whenever anyone's sick you know kill it with calories kill it with calories uh that as and it's so often true of the axiom uh or, or i should say not of the axiom of the of the proverb uh it's true until it isn't yes yeah so order your hamburgers in when you're killing it with calories everybody yes well i will just say if i can just give you a very big compliment right now um i have two master's degrees and a phd in in my field and i have never actually understood the word concupiscence, concupiscence until <laughs> until just now. So, oh, um, so thank you. Um, you know, I know, I know, I should have learned this in seven years of higher ed at a Catholic uh, university, but um, I never did. So, um, kudos. A, well, thanks. I appreciate that. It's a notion that's fallen out of favor for like a whole bunch of good reasons. 
Um, but, you know, we're, we're taking it back. So, so I want to talk about, uh, I'm going to have a series of folks on to talk about things sort of in this zone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I thought that, you know, right, everyone's, everyone's trying to be helpful and responsible and stuff, in part because our attention has been snapped into focus by uh, extremity of circumstance. And, um, and so I, I was thinking, well, you know, we're not the first human beings to be uh, so afflicted. Mm-hmm. Um, and human beings have been reflecting on and talking about and responding to um, intense communal crises together forever. Um, and so uh, what I was hoping you could tell us about is um, this sort of genre of uh, biblical literature that uh, comes out of that kind of thing, apocalyptic literature. Um, I don't know. C- can you give us sort of like, we'll start at 30,000 feet. And if we want to zoom in on stuff, we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's good. Um, <clears throat> so apocalyptic literature uh, if you are a, uh, if you're somebody who's coming at this from a, from a kind of Christian perspective, New Testament perspective, then uh, you have really kind of two strong examples of, of apocalyptic literature. Uh, and that is the book of Revelation. And uh, then within the New Testament, there's a, there's a portion of Mark that we call the little apocalypse. But really, the book of Revelation is what most people think of when you talk about apocalyptic literature. Um, but, you know, apocalyptic literature is not, you know, Revelation's not the only example that we have of apocalyptic literature in the, uh, uh, in, in the ancient world. So there are apocalypses of, you know, there's other Christian apocalypses. There's an apocalypse of Paul. Uh, there's an apocalypse of Peter. There's an apocalypse of uh, Moses. There's an apocalypse of Adam. I mean, there's all of these different apocalyptic texts. and you know, it, it, as a, as a kind of genre of literature, you know, we we when we when we say, you know, what do we mean? What do we mean by this type of literature? And you know, apocalypse an apocalypse as a genre is kind of hard to pin down because it's much more um, a kind of there's a sort of constellation of texts that we consider in the realm of apocalypse. And so, there's a great book. Uh, by John Collins called the apocalyptic imagination. And he, and I can give a, I can give a list of, of good books at the end of this, if we, if we kind of um, get there, but yeah, awesome. John, John Collins is working off of this definition of apocalypse as um, you know, the uh, apocalypse is a, is a text that involves a revelation of God that is delivered to an intermediary through some kind of an angelic, um, guide or messenger and there's a kind of narrative context of these apocalypses and so the apocalypse of john the book of revelation in the new testament is god revealing something to john through an angel and through these kind of visions and so every all apocalypses kind of share that sort of starting point and the word apocalypse itself just means uh revelation something revealed so an apocalypse is something that you're not going to know unless it's revealed to you. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you can know by study of the, uh, by study of something. You just have to kind of have it revealed to you. So or when like, I, keep, I was going to say, you know, or, or you can, I suppose you could think of it too, like, as opposed to like a history, right? Something like, yes, know, the, the you know, Kings or something. Um, 
Yeah, it's very, very tempting. It's very, very tempting for people to read apocalypses like they would read, um, like they would read a history. Or more, more often, it's very, very tempting for people to read apocalypses like a roadmap for the future, which they are not. And we can get there in a second. A history of the future, if you will, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, No. No. I think that's really good. I think. I think most who go to the to Revelation with an untrained eye. Um, or most who have been taught how to read Revelation from an untrained perspective uh, are have been trained to read it as, yeah, I love that, a history of the future. You know, what is going to happen? What's the roadmap? And it really, the text is not, um, that's not what it's really for. And it, it's an abuse, abuse of it to read it that way. But when I teach apocalypses in my classes, I, I like to kind of boil it down to um, a concern and a solution. And so the concern with most apocalyptic texts uh, in, in my kind of reading of them is a concern with uh, the origins of evil and also uh, how the readers of the apocalypse are supposed to respond to the, or- to, to, to the kind of existence of evil in the world. And, uh, and then also the solution being, you know, what is, what's going to happen? Um, you know, the world is not functioning as it should. And so what's the solution? And for the most part, the solution is, well, God's going to fix it. Uh, and that's, um, that, I think that's, that's probably an oversimplification, but it's helpful to me to frame it in terms of the world isn't functioning the way that it should. How are we supposed to react and what's going to be done about it? Mm. And is that, is that sort of the, the notion of evil at work in some or many of these apocalyptic works that that what evil is is a kind of disruption of cosmic order mm. uh, at bottom or is there or is there is there a more differentiated view or or, or am i asking just too specific a question well and that that would be um no i mean i think i think there is always that kind of cosmic sense in in revelation i mean I'll, i can kind of stick with revelation as our as our example text because that's the one that'll be most familiar to to listeners but you know, Revelation, the, the problem of evil, and there's, there's all sorts of baggage tied up with that word evil, but the problem of, uh, the problems that face the world are, are caused by uh, larger problems in the heavenly realm. And so you have, um, you know, you have this notion that there's a battle in heaven and that it's shaking the earth. I mean, there's a kind of good versus evil that's going on in the realm that we can't see. And that that has a direct impact and that sort of what's going on here mirrors what's going on in the heavens. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so then, so, so you mentioned really interesting, right? You mentioned the apocalypse of Peter, apocalypse of Paul. Um, what relationship do those texts have to like, you know, your, your canonical apocalypse um, in, in, in revelation? So, um, I don't want to say, so with, with Apocalypse of Peter and Paul, um, as an, as a non-expert in those texts, I don't want to pretend to know off the top of my head if they're familiar with Revelation as we, as we have it in the New Testament. But what I will say is that I think they are, uh, they are participating in that same discursive reservoir of -hmm. the ancient world and kind of this way of talking about things. And so, you know, they are, um, they are both not self-consciously, but they are both um, 
th those authors are writing these these texts of theirs in that same kind of genre of like this is this this is the type of thing that goes into those texts and yeah, so yeah. you know with um with apocalypses you have often um you know you have the theme of the heavenly journeys you have um you know the angel came and whisked me away here and whisked me away here and the apocalypse of paul if my memory is serving as a tour of hell as well which is kind of fun um <laughs> but you know you have lots of um you kind of have the heavenly journey you have lots and lots of symbolism and so you know in in, in revelation you have um you know these these beasts and uh, plagues and soldiers and and you know all of that kind of stuff and all of those kind of stand for specific things or kind of concepts or um or ideas uh a lot of the symbolism that you have across apocalypses is also numeric and that's one of the things that everyone gets really interested in in revelation seems to be an internal uh interest in the text in threes and sevens and twelves and then, of course, Revelation um, 13, the, the infamous uh, 666 that everyone tries to kind of figure <laughs> out what, what's going on there. Um, but yeah, I think, I think in terms of what is the relationship between a New Testament text like Revelation and uh, post-New Testament text like Apocalypse of Peter or Paul, yeah. And I think really at the end of the day, I mean, there's, there's definitely a, there's definitely a relationship because they're both asking those, those kinds of questions. What's wrong with the world? How are we supposed to respond and, uh, and what's going to be done about it? And, and so then what, like, so, so if, if these texts are sort of mediating between this concern or this question, um, and the sort of ultimate conclusion, right. That God's going to fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, what are some of the like what are some of the literary or otherwise strategies that these texts tend to use um, to to move from the question to the answer mm. um, well, so taking revelation as an example, you know revelation is a book first and foremost about events in the first century and before. And so there's a really, really clever strategy that the author of Revelation uses to kind of spur his readers into action. And th so this, this is kind of how it goes. So, so in the first part of Revelation, all the way up and through uh, chapter 17, I don't have my Bible in front of me, and I'm really, really bad at chapter numbers because I'm <laughs> a failed evangelical. But um, in the first part of Revelation, the author is talking about realities that ancient readers would have been familiar with and would have been able to recognize very, very clearly and very, very easily. Uh, so the best example of this is, is the beast in Revelation, the two beasts in Revelation 13. So there's lots and lots of back and forth uh, uh, about you know, who, what is the beast supposed to symbolize. If you look at it in a first century context and you look at it in terms of like the number that's associated with the name of the beast, 666, it's very clear that the beast is supposed to represent the Roman Empire and specifically the emperors. And 666, most uh, New Testament scholars think, I imagine most New Testament scholars think, probably refers to uh, Nero, Caesar Nero, who is the first um, state-sponsored persecution of, of Christians in Rome. So that's, that's a very clear example of, of, of a story that the author tells 
that readers of Revelation in the first century would look at and say, ooh, I recognize that story. That only happened a couple decades ago. And then they're, they're seeing other stories as well that they recognize. And so all of these kind of tangible stories that the author tells throughout the first 17 chapters of the book, and the author is leading his readers along saying, look at all of these things that have happened. I'm telling you about all these things that have happened. But then this is where the rhetorical strategy is just brilliant. Then very suddenly in, in chapter 18, the author switches to talking about things that have happened in the past. And then suddenly the author starts talking about the fall of Rome, which hasn't happened at the end of the first century when the author's writing. So the rhetorical strategy there is that the author leads his, lead, leads his readers through this elaborate narrative of all of these events that they recognize and all of these people that they recognize. And then the author says, and then I saw Jesus coming back. And so this, the sense there is there's a, that the author creates this sense of urgency by locating the reader in the text and saying, this is where we are in terms of a timeline. All of this stuff has already happened. And the kind of effect that that has on the reader is they, they are seeing this, this author is writing, um, well, they're seeing this author as establishing that the vision that he's giving is trustworthy because everything that he's talked about has already happened. And of course, he's trustworthy because he's writing about things that he knows have already happened. So it, it kind of gives this appearance of trustworthiness, but then rhetorically, it, it, it begs the reader to then take what comes next very seriously and to say, okay, all of this stuff has already happened and what's going to happen next is true and what's going to happen next is going to happen soon. Mm-hmm. I think that, I, I hope that kind of answers this. So that's, I think that's how the, the reader, uh, how the reader is kind of uh, manipulated is the wrong word, but, um, but coaxed into, into sort of seeing the importance of being vigilant. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the author of Revelation, he is, he is writing to churches who are, you know, who are kind of um, on, in various stages of, of, uh, say probably soft persecution. There's, there's, um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of on the fringes of society in some cases. Um, and, uh, the author is sort of trying to tell them anything that you're dealing with right now, that's a hardship, stick with it. And it's going to be made better soon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, so it, it, you could imagine it having a kind of, um, a kind of bolstering effect, right? A, a kind of buoying effect for communities. Um, to to see themselves mm-hmm. as as a part of this story and and for the the sort of narrative logic of the this kind of s- symbolic account of the recent of recent events, you know, in smooth continuity, passing into this portrayal of of what's to come, yep. um, would would yeah would would have a would have a kind of encouraging effect on a community that's that's reading or hearing it. I would think. Yeah, and 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 to kind of pair that with the notion that what's happened good and bad, what's happened is ultimately um, part of a larger plan. Mm. And so just as you were part of this story, there's nothing that's happened so far, good or bad, that has not been, um, sound like a Calvinist saying this, but not been orchestrated by God. And so everything is part of this plan. And what happens before is part of this plan, what's happening now is part of this plan, and what's going to happen eventually is part of this plan. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, the the kind of going back a little bit to the sort of symbolic uh, reference mm-hmm. stuff that's going on there. It is um, well, so at, at the remove of you know coming up on two uh, two millennia. Um, yeah. We have a hard time with the symbolic reference there, um, mm-hmm. but you're suggesting it would have been to to readers and to hearers um, mm-hmm. much more uh, perspicuous. Yeah. Um, would that pers- uh, with that with that clarity pers- perspicuity? There's a hard word to say on on the radio. Um, <laughs> w- would that have been a kind of feature of a kind of like in group uh, symbolic literacy, or would that have been if any? If any like subject of Rome walking around had picked this thing up, they would have known what it was about. Hmm. Or, or would that be a sort of would that would you have to sort of be inculcated into a certain, um, you know, a certain sort of community imaginary or something to be able to to know what hmm. this stuff was about? It's a great question. I think that ultimately, um, apocalypses are always written to esoteric groups, and so there's always they are always written with the assumption of a small readership and a readership that is um that is that is fluent in the symbolic universe so uh you know if you have for example so numeric symbolism is really a is 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 really uh very popular in uh in in the ancient world there's all sorts of examples of um uh so the the practice is called gematria where you take these different letters and you pair them up with numbers and then you add them up and you can refer to people by their number. So I just finished reading a chapter in a forthcoming, um, in a forthcoming book um, called Studying the New Testament Through Inscriptions uh, by a scholar named uh, Clint Burnett. And uh, this, in this chapter that he, that he sent to me, he was talking about all of this graffiti uh, in Pompeii, and you know, there's all this graffiti where where people will talk about, you know, I love the I love the woman whose number is 424. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's I that I made that up, but but there's, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's countless examples just like that of I love so and so whose number is this. Well, the only people who are understanding that are the person who wrote it, the people who live in that house, maybe, and the person who's going to read it, maybe who the, the message was left for. Got so, it. you know, when you have like in, in, uh, in, in early Christian, uh, circles, there's a certain numbers that just kind of trigger immediately a, a knowledge of, 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 of a person. So the number 14, for example, is the, is the, the numeric value of David's name in Hebrew, but you know, 666, the numerical value of Caesar Nero in Hebrew. And, you know, so would would readers have necessarily known that off of the top of their head? Maybe, maybe not. But there's other symbols like, you know, the beast with a certain type of feet and a certain type of claws. I mean, the way that I like to think about how uh, how ancient readers would have would have interpreted and read symbols is just like if I told you a story, and let me just see if you can kind of interpret this story. So uh, there was a, you know, I looked up in the heavens and I saw a giant eagle with a breastplate with stars and stripes all over it. And in its, in, you know, in one claw, it was clutching 13 arrows. And in one claw, it was clutching an olive branch with 13 olives and 13 leaves. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's, and it's, you know, and it was facing 
public brand. You know, if I tell you that story and anyone who's listening to this podcast hears that short story, they know if they're, if they're, in, if they're in the United States right. uh, or if they were kind of brought up in this context, they know that that's a reference to the seal of the United States. Right. And it doesn't take me saying, you know, by the way, I'm talking about the seal of the United States, but, sure. but anyone who's in our context knows that because it's been on, you know, you, you've seen it on TV, you've learned about it in your uh, civics class, you've seen it on the back of the quarter before they uh, did the state thing. And, and so, so that, that, symbol is, is, that symbol is part of your narrative framework. And yeah, so yeah. when you hear somebody talking about, uh, you know, an eagle flying around with arrows in one hand and an olive branch in the other, you know that that eagle is somehow a symbol for the United States. Right if you ask any, any student, any undergraduate student that I've had who's grown up in the United States, why does the eagle face the olive branch? They all, they all know this because they've been taught this from childhood. It faces the olive branch because we prefer peace to war. And you ask them, is that a true story? And they say, well, no, no, no not really. But that's another, that's another podcast, that's, I guess. That's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, that's, but I think that's how symbols work. Yeah. And I think that we... Um, one of the reasons we have a hard time interpreting Revelation is that we are so far removed from that first century Greek and Roman discursive reservoir that the, that the book is drawing from. Yeah. Um, that this, this genre of apocalyptic, did, mm -hmm. did Christians invent it or does it have deeper roots than that? Um, yeah, it, it absolutely has deeper roots. Um, now, there's a couple, so there's portions of the book of Daniel that are, that are apocalyptic in nature. Um, some would argue, I think, that there's portions of Ezekiel that are, that are apocalyptic in nature. And so, um, and Ezekiel is one of these texts, actually, that the, that the author of Revelation in the New Testament probably has a copy of as he's writing his, his own uh, narrative. Uh, we absolutely did not invent this. Um, Christians did not invent this genre, though. Uh, there's countless other Jewish texts. Uh, one of the most prominent is um, probably the Enoch literature, uh, this whole kind of collection of, of non-canonical Jewish texts that, that um, uh, Enoch is, is, is the central character. He's from, you know, from uh, Genesis. God takes him and he walks with God and um, sort of traditionally becomes one of the characters in, in the Old Testament who doesn't die, is assumed into heaven alive for whatever reason. Um, but yes, I think I think Revelation and, and later apocalypses are drawing from that kind of Jewish understanding of apocalypse. Uh, but they, um, but presumably, found a Hellenistic audience, or is or is my 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 uh, dichotomy too flat-footed? Um, no, I don't think that it is. I think I mean, well, I mean, yes and no. I think in, in the first century we're dealing primarily with Hellenistic Judaism, and so in the first century, you know, when when John is writing, the churches that he's writing to are all in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, and so mm -hmm. you know there there are some there. I mean, the the lines between Jew, Jewish and and the lines between Jew and Gentile, or Jew and Christian, or Jew and in sort of Greco-Roman. I mean, these are these are lines that don't exist as finely as they do, um, as or, or as as many like to think that they do. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, I I, I have a little bit of trouble because I we, many of us were trained in that kind of is this Jewish or is this Hellenistic? And it's like oh, you know, 
<laughs> those lines, those, those, those categories, uh, I mean, they, they do exist because Paul can talk about, you know, Jew and Greek and he's, you know, he's aware of these categories, but, but also, you know, we know that there are non-Jews worshiping, uh, in, in synagogues. And, you know, we know that there's a lot more cross pollination. And so, you know, the, the, the discursive re- reservoir of the audience of revelation is probably one that knows, um, those kind of more, um, traditionally Jewish symbols. And then the, the kind of more, uh, Greek and Roman symbols as well. Um, so prob- probably, probably they don't identify as, as readily with those categories. Got it. Um, so, so in these, uh, in these sort of narratives, um, where, where God is going to come fix things, uh, mm-hmm. what kind of things does God do to fix things? Oh goodness. <laughs> well, in revelation, what God does is God comes in with a, with an army of heavenly hosts and just kind of takes care of the, takes care of the source of evil, which is, you know, the devil. And, um, and then I don't know, it's, it's sort of, I mean, to kind of describe it very broadly, God comes in and just makes the world a better place. Yeah. Uh, you know, some have kind of described it as a sort of deus ex machina, that, that mechanism where you, you kind of back yourself into a corner and you say, how in the world are we going to fix this? Ah, an army from heaven. And, um, you know, in, in some ways, I suppose that's accurate, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's ultimately what, what, what happens if the, if the problem in the apocalypse, any apocalypse is, you know, the existence of evil, the proliferation of evil, however, that word evil is understood in that apocalypse, uh, then ultimately the solution is God defeats evil. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Uh, Right. And then, well, and then you have a, and then I have all kinds of questions, uh, about, um, how that I'm just so, I'm, I'm always so curious about how for a, uh, a put upon social minority, um, to express their desire for rescue, deliverance, fixing, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm always interested in sort of what the what the valence of those martial metaphors or martial symbols and images is right is it is it a kind of just like direct like yeah you know caesar has great armies but our god has greater armies mm-hmm. um or is there something um more sort of subtle even satirical going on you know i'm always sort of curious about this is something that um uh oh i'm going to i'm going to forget uh Whose, whose book I'm going to refer to here, but I've, I've actually read in a couple different, the, the little bit of biblical, sort of biblical studies stuff that I know, um, you know, people sometimes sort of trot out sort of retributive versus distributive justice as a set of categories and sort of lump revelation in sort of like in a kind of direct way is like, this is the expression of the cr- Christian uh, expectation of sort of divine retributive justice. And I was like, it, is it, is it that simple? Um, I don't know. I just have like a million questions about that. I, I have, I have, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot to answer them. I just am, am vo- giving them voice because I'm curious about it. Yeah. Um, because if you're going to use, if you're going to use the, those kinds of fantastic images, right, you're going to use these sort of, if you're going to put that, that sort of semiotic distance between your account and the both past events and expected events, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you do run into the thing of well, if this isn't a uh, history of the future, well, 
then then what's sort of literarily going going on here what are we saying yeah and i think that's a great question why not you know if you got this like we like we sometimes write on papers like if you got something to say just say it <laughs> yeah. um and so i think you know i think that's i think that's a great question so i mean at the end of the day the reason why somebody like john in the in revelation is telling the story in the way that he's telling it is, I mean, there's a couple of different ways I think I would frame that is to say, well, first of all, it's a lot more interesting and people are going to, I mean, there's not, there's not a need for kind of entertainment, but it does, it does have a way of engaging with the reader more, especially when we're talking about, you know, ancient readers and their kind of expectations of, uh, of of the things that they're going to read or i mean i keep using this word read read or hear uh, more likely cuz you know literacy rates and all of that but but you know the the story that john is telling it needs to be a good story and so you know you you kind of have that just a, a aesthetic kind of need there for it to be an, an engaging story that will pull people in and uh you know, so that's kind of one of the reasons. But I mean, another big reason is that John is, John sees what he's doing, I think, as kind of, I mean, he sees the story that he's telling as part of the biblical story that he understands as, as the kind of the biblical story. I'm making air quotes right here that nobody will ever <laughs> see, but at least you can see them. But quote, unquote. Quote, unquote. Um, that, you know, so, so John, you know, does John see himself as writing scripture? No, probably not. But he sees what he's writing as part of that story. So, you know, for example, he is, he ends his, he ends his story in Revelation with the reestablishment of the city of God, where, you know, God is, is present among the people, the people are coming and going. And there's then the tree of life. And this, you know, why in the world is he talking about this kind of tree of life that the leaves and the fruit is for the healing of the nations? He's, he's drawing all the way back. He's drawing the reader's attention all the way back to Genesis, where the people eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God says, let us kick them out of the garden so that they will not eat from the tree of life and become immortal. And so, you know, John is, is imagining a world where the tree of life still exists and where people have access to it. And so this is John's way of saying, you know, the kingdom that we're, that we're talking about is an earthly kingdom. It's something where God is reestablishing creation to operate as it was intended. And now the tree of life is available and the tree of life is there um, to, to, give, to give people um, eternal life or immortality or however you want to frame that. Yeah. So, so John is using those symbols and John is using these metaphors and this really, really, you know, the, these, this colorful way of telling the story, I think, because that's how he understands what stories are. And, and as an ancient writer, he doesn't have that kind of same need for, you know, when, when we're, when we're telling, when we're telling a story of like what's happened in the last 50 years, you know, we're going to tell that as straightforwardly as possible, and we're going to tell it in a chronological order. John doesn't really have an interest in that. Um, there doesn't need to be a chronological order to things. Um, but, and he's telling it, I think, because that's the, 
yeah, those are, those are the expectations from the stories that he's drawing from is that there's, they're filled with symbols and metaphors. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, before we wrap up, what should I have asked you about that? I didn't this topic. (laughs) Oh goodness. Um, what should you have asked me about that? You didn't, I think, um, you know, if, if you've, whoever, I, I think depending on who's listening to it right now, I think there will be a question. Uh, and, and this is a question that, that I get from my students a lot because I, I emphasize that Revelation is a book about the past, not primarily a book about the future. And so people will often have the question, but is it still a book about the future? And the answer to that is sort of, for those who read Revelation theologically, uh, that is for those who read Revelation as Christian scripture, as an inspired text or how, whatever category that you use to describe the New Testament, I think the answer to is Revelation a book about the future, that's an answer that has to be yes for those who read it theologically. Because it's like we talked about with, uh, with, the, with the author of Revelation positioning his readers right on the edge of what's about to happen. Right. And so what's about to happen in, in John's view is, is that Rome will be will, will fall. Right. That doesn't happen for a while. Right. And, and so people say, well, John accurately predicted that Rome fell. Well, he, he <laughs> certainly predicted it and it did happen. Um, but, you know, in many ways, theologically, readers of Revelation are still positioned on that cusp of waiting. And mm-hmm. so there is, I think, one of the reasons that Revelation endures as a as a text that has has fascinated people for for two thousand years, I think one of the reasons that endures as a text like that is that it the author doesn't really give you a specific timeline for what's happening in the future. The author yeah. just says, you know, this is all going to happen soon. It's like I tell my students: if I tell you you've got a you've got an exam, you know, two weeks from now on on Thursday, or you know, two weeks from now on Wednesday then there's not a lot of apprehension and there's not a whole lot of ap- there's not a whole lot of need to kind of prepare and be ready but if i say instead you're going to have an exam and it's going to happen soon <laughs> yeah and i'm not going to give you any details aside from that it's that unknown i think that that kind of keeps people on their toes and i think that's one of the reasons why revelation has i i think that's one of the reasons why revelation has continued to entertain people's imaginations is because you know that that Theologically, it is still a book about the future because theologically, you know, is, is creation functioning as it should? I hope not. Yeah, uh, and so, so that's, um, I think that would be a question that, 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 that should be on people's minds is, is Revelation only a book about the past? Mm-hmm. Um, for the historian, um, I mean, for, for me as a, as, a, as a historical critical scholar who's reading this text, my questions are my questions are restricted to how first century readers understood it. Um, but theologically, I think there is a need also to talk about um, the impulses that led somebody to write a text like this and also the the comfort and the hope that people have gotten throughout the centuries reading a text like this as a book that's that's very much saying the world is not functioning as it should, and you know it it's not always going to be the case. Well, and, and for, you know, for our Catholic listeners, Dave Erbum talks about scripture interpretation sort of in terms of 
asking these questions in conjunction, right? If you have a question about what is it that God means to communicate to me by means of this text, um, Dave Urban is really clear that like, well, the, the place you start is you go and you try and figure out what the people who wrote it meant by it. Yep. Um, and so then you, there's a bunch of questions that get prioritized when you're doing that. Um, if, if folks are interested in sort of these broader questions of um, relating the various approaches to the Bible um, and the sort of theological function of the Bible, um, particularly in a systematic mode, go listen to episode 27 with Joe Gordon uh, talking about his, um, his really good book uh, that's a, a systematic theology of the Christian Bible. Um, <clears throat> well, before I lose my voice, um, we, can, we can wrap it up, but I really appreciate you, uh, you know, visiting digitally. Um, and, and sharing your knowledge of apocalyptic literature with us during these uh, apocalyptic feeling times we're in. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yep. Uh, and uh, if you all are still listening out there, thank you. Uh, wash your hands. And uh, other don't things you can face. don't touch your face, wash your hands, uh, six feet between you and other people, uh, all that good stuff. Um, and when you're done washing your hands and not touching your face, uh, you can find us on Twitter at systematic pod. You can send us an email if you want systematically podcast at gmail.com. I didn't look at that thing for about eight weeks. So if you emailed us and I missed it, I apologize. I'm trying to get back on the horse here. Um, we have a Patreon. Um, for those of you who gave faithfully while we were down, I really appreciate it. Um, if you needed to drop, uh, drop us, I totally understand. Uh, if you need to drop us now because your finances have changed because of social distancing, I also totally understand. But uh, we're going to keep pumping out a few episodes uh, during this time of crisis. And if you want to help support, cover uh, the cost of um, web hosting and things like that, uh, it's patreon.com slash systematically. And uh, our intro and outro music, as ever, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. And uh, hey, go out there and be responsible.